Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. This is the brother that they have sold into slavery some years ago, and he has gone down to Egypt. He had, last week he rose up through, the, through Potiphar's house, through jail, interprets a dream. He becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh, uh, rightly discerning the dreams. Sorry, this is a little important intermission. I like to read the text but I'm breaking my rule <laughs> for this explanation. In case we don't know who Joseph is, Joseph is this guy who is now has rightly, rightfully interpreted that there's going to be seven years of famine and then seven, year, seven years of plenty, plenty, then seven years of famine, and that he has stored up all this grain in preparation for a famine that's going to come. And so Joseph is one of the brothers of these 10 that are coming down, one of the sons of Jacob that they betrayed, sold him to slavery, and he's now in Egypt selling grain back to them. So Joseph, picking back up in verse 6, in the parentheses, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They uh, said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, 
talking amongst themselves. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And as they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. In uh, the first book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all four children... Peter, Edmund, Susan, and Lucy, they all finally get into Narnia and they encounter Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they're called that because, well, they're actually beavers, okay? So that's why their name, very creative titling, they are Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they have this conversation. Their brother Edmund, who had been to Narnia before, is planning on running away to go meet the White Witch. He's, he thinks that she's uh, the cat's pajamas. That's who he's going to go be with. She, he thinks that she's on his side. Even though she turns men to stone, she, he's, Edmund is convinced the White Witch is for him. And she's got wonderful Turkish delight. And so he's going to escape. But the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, aware, unaware of his plan, they tell the children not to worry about the White Witch because Aslan is on his way. Edmund to ask, well, won't the white witch just turn Aslan to stone as well? And this gets quite a laugh from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver because they say that if the white witch, if she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most than she can do and more than we expect of her. Then the little children learn as, as Edmund escapes that they themselves are to meet Aslan. They, they learn that this great king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea, as he's described, is not a man, but he's a lion. They're going to meet Aslan, and he is a lion. Lucy is startled, right? And she asks a perfectly logical question. If he is being a lion, is he quite safe? She's afraid she'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, the beavers all agree, and they say, they say that's, that's right. If there is anyone, it is right to be afraid. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And this doesn't help Lucy at all. She says, well, then, then is he not safe? <laughs> now Mr. Beaver gets very animated. Safe, he responds. I think I put this up here. Safe. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love this part in, in Lewis's narrative. He's 
highlighting this very real truth about the one true king. He isn't safe according to our modern standards of safety. There are so many ways that existentially, according to our lived experience, Jesus brings real and meaningful comfort. There are very real ways that Jesus does bring safety and security and peace. We have the forgiveness of our sins. If you're in this place this morning, you've turned from your sins and you've placed your faith in Christ, you have the forgiveness of your sins. Your past, your sins are as far removed from you as the east is from the west, as Psalm 103 tells us, right? So we have an incredible blessing of the forgiveness of sins. We have the promise of his presence with us. Wherever that he promises to be among us, we have the promise of an eternal blessed future. We have the promises of him working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He's good. He has good things for us. But that by no means means that he's safe. Safe? Who gave you that idea? But he's good. He's the king. Jesus will save you, but he will not leave you as you are. He is relentless in his pursuit of you, holy and truly. He does not want a corner of your life. He knows that you were made for him and that your greatest joy is going to be found in your full restoration to him. And so because he knows this, he will faithfully and forcefully fight against all that competes with him in your life. Sins, no matter how small, he will bring conviction for. Idols in your life, no matter how seemingly insignificant they may be, he will make sure to bring destruction to them until you kill them. Love of money, love for the world, he will not tolerate in the lives of those whose primary call is to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. He will not, out of, out of love for his people, he will not allow love for money or the things of this world to, to exist in their lives. He will oppose it, being quite unsafe with how you feel about the things around you because he's good and he's after what is ultimate. He's after you. Because of all of this, what we find is a God who is incredibly good and incredibly for us and not at all safe for our residual sin and selfishness. <laughs> he isn't safe, I tell you. He's good. He's good. And this is exactly what's being proved in the lives of Joseph's brothers. They're being driven deeper and deeper into conviction over their sin. They have this, they have this unconfessed sin in their past. And, and they're being tested and proved over and over and over again. And this is what Jesus, this is what God is after in their lives. They, until they diagnose their problem accurately, and so when we ended our verse, our reading this morning, they begin to ask, what is this that God has done to us? They diagnose it right. All these things circumstantially going wrong. What is this that God is doing to us? God is not playing safe with Joseph's brothers, with Jacob's son, sons. He's not playing safe. He's, he's doing good for them. 
and he's, he's pursuing them. What is this that God has done? What is God doing? He's revealing their sinful hearts to them, and he is testing them. He is opening up to them the pathway of repentance and change. Really, the two go hand in hand, repentance and change. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, he coins a phrase, cheap grace. And I think you could put along with cheap grace, cheap repentance, and that our world has kind of a cheap repentance and our, the evangelical industrial complex that we live in, our, our cultural Christianity has kind of a cheap repentance that says, I'm sorry I did that, but I have no desire to do anything different. <laughs> I'm sorry I got caught or I'm sorry you didn't like it, but honestly, this is the way I want to go. That's cheap repentance, cheap repentance. And God isn't letting them get away with it. But this morning, we're covering three chapters, I said. So that was the beginning of, of 42. And then we got 43 and 44, which we see just kind of this continual testing of the brothers of Joseph. We're not gonna take time to read the rest of the narrative, but you can kind of look through it with me and you can see where we're going, the general outline. We're gonna see this increasing tension in the lives of, of these brothers until the big moment of revelation when they learn that he's his brother, when they learn this is Joseph, that's next week. So come back. Jim's going to preach for us on Genesis 45 where Joseph reveals himself. This week, we're just building this tension. What is going on? We're increasing and increasing in this tension. It's that we have a very important turn of the story, right? It's been 12 years. Joseph's gone into slavery. Potiphar's house, he's ascended, goes to the king's jail. He's ascended, interprets the dreams. They forget about him. And then he goes in and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Seven years of plenty, Joseph uh, governs over. And then at least a few years into this famine. So it's been years since Joseph has been sold into slavery by his brothers. And wouldn't you know it, uh, it's kind of like uh, Ruth wandering into Boaz's field. Wouldn't you know it when the brothers come to buy grain? Who's there that day in charge of the selling of the grain? You think, I don't, I'm not sure if the whole world, the whole known world is coming to buy grain from Egypt at this time. I doubt every sale goes through Joseph. He probably was a better manager than that. He probably had a lot of people managing stuff for him. But somehow in God's providence, his brothers show up. And who is there selling grain or in charge that day? Joseph's there. <laughs> He's there, ready for them. And so Jacob sends his sons down. He doesn't send Benjamin. Is it possible he's afraid that they're going to, maybe he thinks his brothers are responsible for the, the, the loss of Joseph, so they're not responsible enough to take Benjamin. We don't know. He doesn't send Benjamin down. But we see the brothers show up, and they bow down to Joseph. This is a fulfillment of Genesis 37, Joseph's dreams where he has the sheaves all stand up and then he's the center sheaf and all the sheaves bow down to him. The sun, moon, and stars, all these things gather around and they bow down to him. There's this fulfilling of this prophetic dream of Joseph, the brothers bowing down to them, down to him. And Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. I mean, it's Hebrew culture. They'd had their beards all grown out. Egyptian culture, he likely was clean shaven and had a lot of makeup on or something. He was a high official. He was unrecognizable to them. They weren't expecting to see him there. It's like when you're in grade school and you see your teacher at the grocery store. Who is that? <laughs> you're vaguely familiar, but you're not at school. Who are you? And so you can see how that, you know, he doesn't, they don't know who Joseph is. Uh, but he interrogates them, and it reveals a lot about them. His father's still alive. Benjamin is at home with his father. And they, Joseph begins, he, he stays guarded. He doesn't say, hey, bros, it's me. Like, 
I'm so glad you're here. He doesn't just give it away. There's a little bit of time of testing. Is he just being mean? That's kind of the question. Like, why is Joseph doing this? Is he just being vengeful? Is he just taking his anger out on them? I don't think so. I, I think in his wisdom from God, he's proving or testing his brothers. He's testing them to see if those same wicked brothers from all those years ago are just the same wicked brothers. Has there been any change in them? There's, there's really seven, maybe eight tests that he puts upon them. We're going to fly through them. He calls them spies. Remember when, when they first <clears throat> get rid of their brother. <clears throat> Thank you, Joel. I need a drink of water. When they first get rid of their brother, it's because he is sent to see what they're doing. And they accuse him essentially of being a spy. They think he's a spy. And so Joseph has a callback. Remember how you called that younger brother of yours a spy, falsely accusing him? We think, are you spies? He accuses them of being spies. I think I got all seven of these up here maybe. He accuses them, thanks, that's gonna help me. He accuses them of being spies. And then he, he, he does, I don't have technically one and a half. I, reading it again this morning, I'm like, oh wait, I forgot one. That he says, uh, send, uh, send one brother or send everyone go home send someone to go and get Joseph and bring him back. There's this separation of the brothers that happens where he says, send, uh, send someone out, send the younger, send, send one of you and bring Benjamin back while I keep the rest of you. No, we're not gonna do that. So then he throws them into jail. They go into a pit. They go, they go these are not, they go into a jail. For three days, they're down in a jail. Like Joseph was thrown into a pit for a time period. But then he brings them back up and he makes, he separates the brothers. He sends all of them away and keeps Simeon back. Maybe Simeon was kind of a, one of them not nice guys to Joseph. We don't really know why him particularly, but he splits the brothers up. What will the brothers do? Will they go back to Jacob and just say, uh, here's a bloody coat. I don't know. Simeon, we, we found this. Is this Simeon's? You know, there's this testing. Are they going to bother coming back? Take some money in exchange for leaving your brother. I'll put money into your sacks. You're going to profit financially from this transaction. So he's, he's testing them with some more money. They get back in, verse, in, in chapter 43, and, and we see the, the return and, and all of this trouble. They get back, and, and yet the, the famine persists. And so Jacob finally concedes that we've got to go back and buy more grain, and Benjamin has to go. The brothers refuse we're not going to go if we can't take Benjamin. There's no point. So finally, Jacob concedes, and he says, kind of Esther-like. I think the kids are maybe going to look at the book of Esther some, and where Esther says, you know, um, if I, you know, let it be unto me, you know, if I perish, I perish. And Jacob kind of says in verse uh, 14 uh, of, of chapter 43, he says, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. If I perish, I perish. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. I'm going to do what needs to be done. I'm going to do what needs to be done to save my people, to save my family. And so they send the brothers back. They get back and they talk to, at the end of chapter 43, they talk to the, a servant, a, a person who's over a charge of Joseph's, kind of a, 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 a person who's working for him. They try to return the money and the steward, that's his name, the steward's like, oh no, we got your payment, that money is yours and he's been coached by Joseph. He says, actually, your God and the God of your fathers, he's watching out for you, which is a really incredible statement to come from an Egyptian. Should have been some alarm bells going off in their heads. Like, why is this guy talking about God of our fathers providing for us? They get back. 
to buy the grain. The second time, Joseph throws him a giant feast and he lines them up by age at the table. How Joseph knows that, they don't know. They're a little freaked out by it. They line them up by age. Benjamin lasts. And as the food is brought out, Benjamin, the youngest son, the only, the full brother of Joseph, gets a five-time portion of food than everybody else. The youngest is favored. How will the brothers react when there's a favorite and it's not them? <laughs> how, will the, how will their jealousy, because remember with Joseph, their jealousy made them hate him because he was favored. He got the coat of many colors. Benjamin's gonna be favored. What's gonna happen? And then, and then as the, 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 the story progresses, they're sent away. Chapter 44, we see that they put a silver cup in the top of the bag of, the, of, of Benjamin's food. And Joseph sends the steward out to pursue them again. And someone, you guys have stolen my silver cup. Oh no, we would never do that. Uh, you know, whoever's done it, kill them. So they go through the bag and they start, of course, with the oldest. And they work their way down. And sure enough, who has the silver cup? Benjamin's got the silver cup. They all despair. This son that we've promised to bring back, he now is going to, we've promised you could kill him. He's, they're going back. So they all go back to meet with Joseph. They must be thinking, how does everything keep going wrong? They head back and meet with Joseph, still not known to them. Says there's no need for them all to become slaves, just the ones enough. He's the transgressor. Give up the favored, spoiled brat of a son and you all can go on your merry way. Sound familiar? This is what happens with Joseph. Get rid of the favored son, go on your merry way. How will they respond? Confrontation after confrontation, conviction after conviction. And this is where Judah, at the end of chapter 44, makes an incredible confession. And we're going to get to that last. But before we get there, why is Joseph, sorry, that was me trying to do three chapters pretty fast. But why is Joseph dragging them through all of this? We must develop in our minds a category of understanding that is this. At times, God will be against us circumstantially because he is for us ultimately. At times, God will be against us circumstantially because he is for us ultimately. And this is what's being lived out in the lives of Jacob's sons. They're going through something that is quite uncomfortable for them, to put it euphemistically, because there's, there's, or to put a good spin on it, because there's something greater that God is working in them. Ultimately, God is working their redemption, the survival of their family. God has made mankind to glorify himself through their relationship with him and their representation of him in the world. Sin has broken that natural purpose, but it has not removed it. We all still long for him and to be with him. It is what is best for us because it is what we are made for. Therefore, because God is loving, he must do whatever he can to bring about our nearness to him. Because he is loving, he must do whatever he can to bring about our nearness to him. If in fact, if any circumstance can be said to have brought us nearer to him, it has been a good for us. We get this uh, category of God working or, or things happening circumstantially bad for an ultimate good purpose. We get this at a popular level. 
Uh, I'm going to try to do this generationally. So the movie Hoosiers, right? There's uh, uh, Gene Hackman is the coach, right? And there's this scene where he's, they're out playing and he's coached the guys four passes and then shoot the ball. Four passes. And I'm not sure if that's a good coaching technique or not, but that's what he's, that's what he's decided. Pass the ball four times, then you can shoot. Well, this one dude, he's like, no, nah, I don't care. I, I'm going to shoot the ball. I don't care if I pass it. He disobeys the coach. So he benches him. And so there's only six guys on the team. And now this one guy's benched because he's not following the coach's rules. Five guys are out there. One guy fouls out. What's coach going to do? The guy stands up. He's like, stay. We're going to play with four people. <laughs> and they finish the game with four on five. And circumstantially going bad for this kid. But he's, he's proving a point. He gets benched. There's a temporary suffering. But this kid that becomes one of the great defenders of coach and has great respect for coach because of the ultimate good of listening to the coach that he's going for, right? Circumstantial bad for an ultimately good, good consequence. If that's not your generation, maybe you remember the cinematic Marvel uh, movie Armageddon, where uh, Bruce Willis, if you know, gosh, I, my references are so bad. Yes, okay, I got some 90s kids, Armageddon. And if, if all you saw was the scene where Bruce Willis punches Ben Affleck, you'll think, this guy's terrible. What is he doing? But if you know the storyline, which a lot of you don't, but I know I'm not saying go watch the movie. It's not that great. The Aerosmith soundtrack's okay. But uh, he punches Ben Affleck, who's his son, who's, a, who's the guy who's in love with his daughter, because they got to stay on this asteroid. It's great. Instead of Instead of training astronauts how to drill into an asteroid, they train guys who know how to drill how to be astronauts. It's the dumbest idea. But it seems like one would be easier than the other. But they're on this asteroid to destroy it. And, and they both, uh, the, the starter button to detonate the asteroid doesn't work. And so one, someone has to stay on the asteroid to blow it up before it crashes into Earth. And Ben Affleck's character draws the short straw. So Bruce Willis goes down with him in the elevator. And as they get to the bottom, Ben Affleck says, tell your daughter I love her or something like that. And he says, no, you tell her. And he punches him in the jaw, knocks him out, sends the elevator up, and Bruce Willis stays and sacrifices his life that Ben Affleck might go home and be with his daughter. Circumstantial bad going on for ultimate good, right? I mean, I mean, so maybe, I don't know. If you know Harry Potter, Severus Snape, hopefully you've finished the series, but man, he is hard on Harry Potter. And you find out that that whole time was serving a, a certain purpose. Circumstantially very hard on him, but for an ultimate good purpose in that whole narrative. This is an important category to form in our minds. God will sometimes be against us because he's for us. And he has to oppose everything that opposes him and us that we might know him and be drawn closer to him. It's an important category to know. Realize the enemy of your soul. Never forget that you have one. Never forget that you have an enemy. Satan and all of his minions he wants you in hell with him. He wants to ruin your life and he wants to damn your eternal soul along with him. Never forget you have an enemy. And he knows that the best way to get you to run from God is to make sin against him look attractive and feel so right. And sin often does, at least for a bit. And maybe for quite a while, plunging forward into sin feels great. But ultimately it leads to ruin. And there are plenty of issues that, hit close to us as a community that I could talk about. Just talk about a couple. Our, our community's use of alcohol is, is sinful by and large. 
we, where we are, I, I can't preach against the use of alcohol because the Bible has it, but it seems like either alcohol is something you need every day or something you have to, if you dive into it, you gotta go all the way to the bottom. And both of those are sinful. They are transgressing this addiction side of I need something to keep my life going or the, the direct violation of the book of Ephesians, which says, do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You have, you have to become oblivious and, 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 and let go of all you know, control to, to be happy or whatever. And both of those responses, they feel great in the moment, quite possibly. They're driving you farther from him. And so it feels like I'm being the grumpy, mean guy to say, these are things that are not good for you, and God will oppose them in you. And it's like, well, you're, that, that's a mean thing. That's actually for your good. It's because what I want for you is not either of these escapes. I want you to find your satisfaction, your hope, your peace, your assurance, your freedom in Jesus, not in a substance. Sexual immorality, you know, our scripture tells us to keep the marriage bed undefiled. That means that all the responsibilities and the activities and the enjoyments of marriage are meant to be kept in a marriage, in the context of marriage. Heterosexual, monogamous marriage. That is the context for all of these activities. Now, I'm no dummy, and I know that I look boring, so you think I'm a thousand years old, or I am boring, but I'm not that old. That we all are aware that there there are things that there that are enjoyable. That it's that it is that it, that it's not. It's ridiculous to say that these things do not have lost their appeal outside of that context. It isn't like well, if it's outside of marriage, it isn't appealing to anyone. Of course, it is. It's the whole way sin works at us. All of those activities outside of marriage, they've lost none of their appeal and interest. But boys, I know that texting and asking girls for things seems and feels so right in the moment. But if you can't add your dad or mom to that text thread or to that Snapchat thread, you shouldn't be doing it. It's sinful. It is outside of the marriage context. And I know it feels great and you want to do it and it seems like, man, this has got to be good for me, doesn't it? That you have to have this category. At times, there'll be things that God is against that you think are good for you, feel good for you, appeal to you because God wants something better for you. <laughs> There's something better. Girls, if a guy asks for something, it may feel good that he's interested in you. Listen to me. He doesn't love, he's not interested in you. He's only interested in himself. <laughs> don't, don't. It's, that is, it's, it's plunging into sin. And it may feel like it would be so wonderful to have this person love me and be interested in me. It may feel so right, but God will at times be against what you feel like is so right because he wants something far better for you. Far better for you. You've got to have this category in your life. We object. <laughs> No way, it looks and it feels so right. And there are those, and those who are for us and are opposing our sin, they just want, they're just trying to ruin our joy. But your joy is actually the very thing that those who are opposing those sinful activities are after. There are times in your life where disobeying God and doing what you want will feel so right. Joseph's brothers for sure knew that. We all know it to some level. But sin never leads you to ultimate joy because it leads you away from your true purpose. 
it leads you away from God himself. So then we often confuse God's work. What's, what's the right response? With this conviction then comes, what should we do? We see in the brothers' confession, they admit it. We did this wrong thing. We sold Joseph into, into slavery and we shouldn't have. Confession of sin. What do we do when we find ourselves opposed by God? Conviction is there. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't have done this. I did this in the past and I regret it and I'm convicted. What do we do? Confess. I did do this. I do have these desires. This is the struggle that I have. This is the, the problem in my life. Confess it. Confess it. We see this transition in the lives of the brothers. We don't have time for it this morning. They, they confess it. They produce his compassion. They care for others instead of just themselves. And lastly, confess, care for others, cling, develop compassion, cling to Christ. Last point is hinted at here with the life of, of Judah. And I know we're, I, just bear with me here. This passage is so important. Judah, at the very end of chapter 44, they're going to throw Benjamin into slavery, punish him. And Judah objects. He says, now, therefore, please let me, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to the Lord. And let the boy, Benjamin, go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah is this one whom the Savior is going to come through, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what we see here in this brave action is we see a shadow of what our Savior is going to come to do. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to show up one day, and the penalty that a brother deserves, that his brothers deserve, he's going to say, I'll take that upon myself that they might go free. So all of the conviction that we feel, all of this all of this uh, sin that exists in our life, what we find in Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the seed that is coming, is one who is saying, the, pen the punishment, the shame that you deserve, the guilt that you should bear, I will stand in your place, take it upon myself, that you might be forgiven of your sin, washed white as snow, and filled with the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to his commands. Judah offers to submit himself to his brother's penalty so that his family might be saved. And in so doing, he is showing what kind of savior we ought to be looking for. One who will suffer and sacrifice himself for, his sake, for the sake of his brothers. If you are convicted of your sin, if you feel the weight of running away from God and not to him, the good news this morning is that does not have to be the final word for you. If you will sincerely turn to Christ, sincerely turn away from your sin, not in some superficial fashion, but really and truly hate it and seek to kill it, you will find a Savior who has bore your curse so that you could be forgiven and set free, so that you could really and truly be reconciled to God, so that you could know that though God may circumstantially in various ways oppose you, he ultimately is for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Trust in him today. Let's pray. Father, I've intentionally, I think that this is a, these passages, they push towards a breaking point. When will rescue come? And Father, there's a, there's a heaviness to these passages that testing and conviction, but it all points that the conviction is not pointless. The conviction has a point and it is to drive us to the cross. It is to drive us to the Savior, to this, this one, this Savior who has given himself in our stead so that we could be made righteous. God, I pray 
for us in this room as we sing this closing song, God. Work in our hearts the conviction of sin, not that we might be buried with shame and guilt, but that we might with unapologetic honesty lift it up to you and rejoicing in all that you are for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name.